Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Zach. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chip spots. Monday, September 30th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your co-host, Matthew Zachary, and I am a proud 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm Annie Goodman, journalist, young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives at stupidcancershow.org. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Chief Cat Herding Officer at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live-tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodeck, so send me your questions and feedback anytime with hashtag SCRadio. On tonight's show, Life Beyond Childhood Cancer, we have Karen Kinahan, Kristen Smith, and long-term survivor Colleen Sierra join us from the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, which is part of Northwestern University's Comprehensive Follow-Up Star Program for Adult Survivors of Childhood Cancer. And in our Survivor Spotlight on Young Adult Colon Cancer, we have fighter, blogger, and healthcare activist Michelle Whitehead-Hastings. Hello, hello. Hi. Hello. Welcome back. From? Anywhere. I've been traveling. Welcome back from Suite 808. I've Happy. been everywhere. Yeah, we've been all yeah. over. That sounds like a song. I'm going to go with a song. Yeah. Yes. Kenny Kane. Where do we start? I have no idea. OMG East. I'm just going to go with Maureen got a nice sweet job upgrade that I'm not aware of. Chief Cat Herding Officer? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm gonna, I think I'm going to change my title every week. Are you excited about I'm that? I'm fine with that. Okay. You're too young to know this reference, but it's Murphy-Brown Syndrome. No, you've told me about this before. Okay, then you're not too young because I've told you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too young for this. <laughs> exactly. Kenny, how was your... Uh, oh, we were both traveling, but you've been away. You went to uh, the West Coast. I was in San Diego. I was at the Scripps. It was the inaugural symposium... Osium, Sosium, something or other, Osium, 
Uh, it was, from what I understand, they combined some of their programs into one mega conference. For nurses. For nurses. And there was several hundred, and I set up at 8, or quarter to 8 in the morning, and by 8.15, they had robbed me of most of my stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> the pilchers. Yes. Yeah. The uh, the fun thing to do at conferences in the past couple of years is the exhibitor passport or bingo, whatever you want to refer to it as, where they have to hit up every booth and have the person sign. Right. So literally these nurses formed a line, and I was just signing KK, KK over and over again, and they were taking my tote bags and pens and stupid cancer literature and uh, hopefully hearing what I was telling them about the organization. <laughs> and maybe some of them are listening. So thank you for tuning in if you are. So this was like the second largest nursing oncology nursing conference in the country. It was, over the weekend, it was the largest in San Diego. That's pretty amazing. Yes. And you were being hit with your fancy new uh, backdrop and yes. exhibit tables and whatnot. Yep. It's uh, it's like a U2 concert now at the Stupid Cancer booth. You get that big giant spider thing from yeah. space. Yep, yep. Yeah. The, the claw. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but exactly. it was a really nice event. We had a Stupid Cancer meetup halfway through the day. Luckily, it coincided with a break and uh, saw a lot of our San Diego people. It was good to see them and catch up and... Thank them for everything they're doing on the West Coast, representing Stupid Cancer. Saw Jason and Erica Malat, who have been uh, with the organization long before I came. And uh, they recently relocated out there, so it was fun to see them. And uh, all is good in Stupid Cancer land. Very nice. How about, what, what were you got? Yes, on the West Coast. Tell me about the East Coast. Yeah, I was invited to uh, the Astro Conference in Atlanta. Astro is... The uh, Radiation Oncologists Annual Conference, similar to what you went to, but just for radonks, as they call themselves. Um, and uh, props to uh, Rafael Yacheli, uh, a doctor of radiation oncology out of, um, I think it's a John Wayne Cancer Center. I'm going to botch that up, but he knows what I'm talking about. For helping to bring, get this, it was the 55th annual year that Astro has had their conference, and this was the very first time they had a patient panel. To get their feedback? She was a gasping in the room here. But I was on a panel, and it was well-armed, because I was there with Johnny Immerman from Immerman Angels mm-hmm. and Tamika Felder. How are those two doing? They are doing great, and I also want to give Tamika some props tonight, because she is launching a brand-new, amazingly brand, well-branded initiative. Uh, she is the uh, Queen Bee archetype patient advocate for young adult cervical cancer. So she has a brand new brand called Survivor. Brilliant. C E R V I V. Someone help me. V O R. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Something. So it's Survivor with a C E R V. It's brilliant. Survivor dot org, and it's largely content based. She's going to be interviewing lots of people and putting up a commentary, and it, it's really well done. So props to Tamika uh, for in, uh, re- rebranding herself as Survivor dot org. Um, I have seen it, and it's, it's good. pretty awesome. It's pretty so is awesome. that going to replace Tamika and Friends? I hope so. I think she believes it will, and she's radically aware of the fact that you can't really grow a brand based on some person's name. And, uh, you know, it's nothing against her, and she, you know, she has to let it go a little bit, and that's kind of what she's doing, and it's all for the right reasons, and it's going to be incredibly successful. Well, I am there 40 40- First like on Facebook. <laughs> Very nice. Maybe so. I'll be the forty second. I thought I was I think I'm like the seventh like, which is nice. 
Um, but then after I left Atlanta, I went to um, something called Social Palooza, which is an annual um, meet and greet of sorts of patient advocates with Big Pharma to talk about you know what they're not listening to. And it was a bit of a shark tank because we watched four healthcare startups give a 10-minute pitch about what they're doing, and we had to sort of on-the-fly rank, rate, and Simon Cowell them. Uh, so it was interesting to see what people were thinking about. A lot of it is like patient dialogue and patient navigation and, and uh, talking to your doctors and access to this and whatever. So it, it, the challenge that the advocates on the panel with me faced was that none of it was really about building community. Uh, it was really about here's a service that we hope patients adopt. And uh, the, the point was made loud and clear that if you don't work with the advocacy groups, whether it's us or whether it's Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation or Autism Speaks, you're not going to get adoption from the patient communities. Um, but overall, it was great. It was wonderful. Kudos to uh, Jack Barrett and at the WeGo Health, W-E-G-O Health dot com uh, for inviting me up there to speak. And um, it was good. It's really good. Good weekend. Yes. Yeah. Definitely good weekend. And we had our event. Yeah, we haven't even talked about OMG East. Yes. Which took place this past Saturday. We've been plugging that for a little while. So it's a small version of our OMG Summit that we do here in New York City. We did right across the street from our office, which was convenient for us. We had about 175 young adult cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, advocates come out. Um, we did sessions on nutrition, um the survivor panel. The survivor panel. We did the Affordable Care Act. Marketplace launches tomorrow. Sorry to remind you guys. Um, and we had a really great time, really great after party with representatives from Wish Upon a Wedding, another great organization we're working with, um, donations from Magnolia Bakery, Shutter Booth, um, DJ Echo of Heartbeats. Um, so it was a really great event. I, I thought it went pretty well. What do you guys think? I thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah. I dragged myself out of my apartment from my deathbed. Right. Right. To, you were ill you. this weekend. Thank you, yeah, Annie. I had a horrendous cold. And Hats I, off. Hopefully, I did not get anybody sick. That was my goal was no hugs, no uh, <laughs> no hugs, no handshakes. But um, it was a great event. I knew. I was like, oh, I cannot miss this. So I went, and I made it by lunchtime to see everybody, and it was very, very cool to, um, you know, check out the survivor panel. I always like hearing people's, uh, you know, back and forth and people get to ask questions. You know, one of the tough questions that people asked that um, we're all reminded of all the time is uh, survivor guilt, and that is a panel in and of itself. That was a really important, you know, it just kind of sprung out when someone, they were practically in tears talking about losing a friend, and the entire crowd just totally got it. And... It couldn't have been better timing because I learned one of my friends uh, passed away from metastatic breast cancer. She's been a guest on this show. Uh, Jen Smith out of Illinois passed away over the weekend. And I literally found out while I was sitting at the table with some other people who knew her. And um, it was kind of bizarre how someone asked that question about, you know, just not just the survivor guilt, but how do you keep going when you lose a friend? to the same disease that you suffer or suffer or suffered from. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. And we had the nutrition panel and the chef with no stomach. And it was... Uh, and the amazing Dr. Dan Shapiro. Yes. Mm -hmm. Who, coincidentally, the next day 
was at Scripps, that with, Scripps you. with my yeah at my event that I was at uh, Small World this little cancer community indeed it was interesting this is probably the first stupid cancer event that I missed OMG East that is so that was a strange feeling people felt the need to give me the play by play I was getting a lot of text messages right uh, yeah. and pictures and dual Instagramming <laughs> from the, from the west coast. But you, your cardboard cutout did make it, so you were not entirely yes entirely absent this week. Yes. It was great. Well, we have a lot more to talk about probably during the break, but I want to get to Michelle because she is uh, someone who I, 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 almost, I feel horrible that she has not been on the show in like seven years. I've known her just as long, and she has an amazing story. She's an incredible human being, and uh, I'd like to bring her out. So let's cue up some awesome music here. And... Uh, Michelle Hastings is a 37-year-old wife and mother uh, to two young children and is currently undergoing treatment for stage 4 colon cancer. She is also an avid advocate for the young adult cancer movement and blogs about her cancer journey at michellewillwin.blogspot.com. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show my friend, Michelle Whitehead Hastings. Hello. I uh, again, I I feel so so much talk about survivor guilt. I feel radio guilt that we after all these years we've not had you as a guest. Um, but uh, I can't thank you enough for for calling in tonight. Well, gosh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm just grateful that uh, that you had me on. This this is a wonderful opportunity. So thank you. Yes. So let's uh, let's start with the basics here. I mean, I think when I met you, you were going through a, a cancer diagnosis, and here we are seven years later, right, or six years later? Yeah, coming up on six years later, yeah. Originally diagnosed stage three back in 08, uh, surgery, chemotherapy, when it's re, uh, remission, and then in March of 2012, it came back, and I've been fighting since then. So let's talk about uh, colon cancer in young adults. Uh, it, it's typically not a disease you consider. Well, I mean, most people don't consider cancer at all in young adults, but colon cancer especially. Um, what was your life like before your initial diagnosis and symptoms? And talk talk us through that journey. Sure. I I was 31 when I was diagnosed. So um, my son was just shy of two. My daughter was six. Um, was working full time, um, raising two kids, keeping a household, doing all of the things, I mean, short of the white picket fence and the dog, we had the perfect American life. And um, I started having some symptoms, blood in my stool and some changes in my bowel habits and was able to explain them away, as so many of us do, and mention it to my husband and he insisted I go in and, and see a doctor who luckily insisted that I get a colonoscopy. And literally right up until the moment they knocked me out of the colonoscopy, we were all joking that I would just go home with a bottle of Preparation H because there was no way they were going to find anything. So it was quite a shock when I woke up and they told me that I had just been diagnosed with colon cancer. I didn't even know what colon cancer was. Um, and why don't you tell so us it, about some of the symptoms you were having leading up to the test and how it all unfolded, uh, you know, once it had the doctor told you and then how, where you went from there. Sure. Um, really didn't have a lot of symptoms. That's one of the things about this disease is that you can really 
talk away or explain away the symptoms. I had blood in my stool, occasionally not consistent, and I just kind of assumed that since I had two kids that they were hemorrhoids. And I had some changes in my bowel habits, so one day I might be constipated, and a couple of days later I might have some diarrhea. And we were in the midst of buying our own home. I assumed that that we were just eating out too much and we were eating too much Chinese and too much Mexican, and so that was the reason for the changes in the bowel habits. Um, went in for the colonoscopy, came out, and I can't tell you whether it was a nurse or my doctor that told me we found something. She brought in these photographs, and it was very, I mean, it was this black mass in my colon. And we think you have cancer. We'll be right back in the left. And I just remember looking at my husband and sobbing um, because you don't, you don't know, unless you're in this community, you don't know what cancer is. I, I don't think that people truly understand what cancer does to a family or what it does to a person. And you hear that and you think your life is over. Um, unfortunately, I had my colonoscopy on my mother's birthday, and I had to call my mother on her birthday and tell her that her oldest child and her only daughter had just been diagnosed with cancer. Um, within five days, I was in the surgery. Um, three weeks later, I had my port put in. Two days later, I had started uh, chemotherapy. It's a chemo that they call full box. It was very brutal on the system. Um, went through that, uh, made it through a port infection. Um, and a variety of side effects that are willingly forgotten, including nausea and diarrhea and, you know, the whole gamut, the fatigue. Um, and then blissfully was just super excited to be in remission. Um, lived my life in remission for three years. The cancer was always a concern, but I, I think that everybody in my realm had assumed that we were past it. We were just waiting for that five-year mark. That five-year mark was getting closer and closer. Every turn of the month, you know, every turn of the calendar page, we were getting closer and closer to that five-year mark. Um, I was going in for my routine six-month checkup. You know, you get routine blood work. You get routine test scan. And we were in for blood work, and my CEA was through the roof. And uh, which test is test that? Scan. It's, it's the, um, I went in for my blood work. And my CEA, which is the tumor marker for colon cancer, okay, that had gone up. Um, went in for my PET scan and went in to see my doctor. And it's never good when they call you into the office versus just telling you, no, you don't have cancer. It's always bad when they call you into the office. So I knew immediately that I had an issue. Um, and you had no symptoms at the time? Kids, I'm sorry? Did you have any symptoms at the time? No. No. At the time, I was working out three to four times a week. I was running. I was working full time. I was managing my household. Nothing in my life indicated that I had, that my cancer had come back. Least of all that it had come back in my lungs. But the question I would and want to bring up then, Michelle, is, you know, we talk about you know, how the, this is done through the lens of the young adult and 
how we choose to um, sort of uh, let the world know what our story is and the, the change you try to affect. You took to the blogosphere pretty early on, right? Michelle, you still with us? Oh, we're Michelle, you still with us? Can you hear us? I guess she dropped off. No, she's well. She's technically still on the line here. Um, oh, but she dropped off. I think she's going to call back. Well, anyway, I, my my point being, I've known Michelle for a very long time. Her blog is Michelle Will Win. Um, dot blogspot dot com. And she's been an incredible health activist for the Young Adult Movement and a colon cancer spokesperson for uh, for several organizations for quite a while now. Um, I like her tagline. It's mission remission. Yes, mission remission, exactly. Um, so basically, uh, she's one of the first people I met. She was uh, one of the, the – uh, I think she's calling back in now. Let's see here. Um, Michelle, do we have you back? This means sorry about that. Okay, I I think we were having some um some uh internet problems at the uh we we love our technology but when it doesn't work it doesn't work. Um I was just uh yes. commenting how you were one of the first uh people I met in the young adult cancer world who was an active blogger and uh, you took to that yes. very quickly after your diagnosis. The day after. Yeah, so talk about that. Yeah, I Well, so I have family spread throughout the, the country, family and friends spread throughout the country, I think, like most of us. And I actually have a brother who's overseas. And after that initial diagnosis and you're trying to keep up with everybody, it dawned on me that it would be a lot easier for them to check in on me than it would be for me to contact them. And so the initial purpose of my blog was really to just make it easier for myself. I'll be honest, it was laziness. I didn't want to have to call everybody. <laughs> um what it's since morphed into is a place for me to vent, a place for me to get my emotions and my feelings and my frustrations, my anger, my irritations out. Um, and what I've found it's done for other people is they find, which baffles me, they find inspiration in my story. Um, they, I think that I'm raw enough and I think that I'm open enough that I don't sugarcoat a whole lot of it. And... I found that somehow that seems to resonate with people. I think the aspect of blogs is really important, especially when, you know, you're dealing, you have a lot on your plate and, you know, it's not lazy. Don't call yourself lazy. You just don't want to have to tell the same story over and over and over again. So you could almost play the cancer card and just be like, just read this blank. I don't want to talk about it right now. And it avoids, you know, misinformation and don't call yourself lazy though. <laughs> well, it, it started out that way, and luckily it's morphed into something completely different. And now that I'm diagnosed with what is in all intents, for in, all intents and purposes a terminal cancer, um, I realize now that by doing this, it's not only giving me a place to vent, but it's also re- leaving my children and my family with this sort of legacy of how I felt during this treatment and how I dealt with it and coped. And hopefully someday it'll be inspirational to my children in the way that's inspirational to other people. So speaking of being a mom, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, juggling having children and going through your treatment and how you talk to your kids about what's going on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. 
Um, as I said, my kids were real young when I was originally diagnosed. They were six and two. And one of the things I found through the five-plus years of treatment and uh, dealing with everything is when it comes to my kids, keeping it simple is the key. Being honest is the key. Um, and really making sure that you're keeping it at their level. Um, don't ask questions that you assume they're asking. Ask answer the question that they're actually asking. Don't think more into it than they're saying back to you. And to, you know, make sure that you're keeping those lines of communication open. Um, my daughter's now 11, 11 and a half. My son is now seven. I just had to have a very difficult conversation with my son about why I was in the hospital over the summer. And it was affecting him at school. And then I just realized how much. It's really keeping those lines of communication open and being honest. Kids hear too much. They know too much. And if you're not honest with them, they're going to create their own reality, and oftentimes that's tinged with fear. And as a mom, that's one thing you don't ever want for your kids. Michelle, have there been any um, specific like, resources that you've turned to, or did you invent things that worked for you? Uh, what, what did you find, if anything, out there uh, to talk to your children about your disease? Honestly, I, I looked. And coming up on Pinktober, this, this isn't going to be a popular sentiment, but everything I found was breast cancer-based. And being someone who wasn't dealing with breast cancer, I couldn't, in all fairness, use that as a resource because I wasn't facing breast cancer. Um, what I found worked for my kids were analogies. So when my daughter was first diagnosed, she had just finished, she just finished kindergarten the day before and had just completed a segment on cells. So just learning basics, that the body's made up of cells, et cetera, et cetera. So what I was able to do is to bounce off of that and say, okay, there are these really bad cells inside of mommy called cancer. And we were able to use an analogy of green army men. So the chemo was green army men that were going inside of mommy, and they were going to kill the cancer, but sometimes they couldn't tell the difference between good cells and bad cells, and that's why mommy was going to get sick. And to this day, my 11-year-old child still has green army men and uses that analogy. So, again, keeping it simple and really using what works for your kids. So have you met other, I mean, I'm assuming that now that the young adult cancer movement is a kind of a big thing now, have you met other women uh, or even parents facing cancer who've had to talk to their children through your blog, through your outreach? Uh, is, is, is that um, an advantage now that you're, trying to pave the way and uh, be there for people uh, who you've now walked in their shoes. What's been your experience in connecting with like-minded people? Yeah, I, I've actually had a, a lot of people follow my blog specifically because I have young kids because I do talk about them on the blog. Um, I actually had a lady, and she'll laugh if she's listening to this, literally chase me down at the treatment center that I'm being treated at um, because she had found my blog and knew me and wanted to bounce ideas on how to talk to her kids off of me. Um, you know, I've met parents who didn't tell their kids anything, and literally I sat in the room watching this mother take her last breath, and her kids did not know until the day she died that her cancer was that terminal. Wow. And I use that example with a lot of people because I think it's super important for kids to be aware of what's going on. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of being truthful with your kids. And when I met them out in uh, in Goodyear, they were both very 
sweet, and they they totally got it. And that was fun to see you out there, by the way, as I interject. Thank you. Yeah, Kenny says hi, by the way. <laughs> uh, so we got a few minutes left. I, I just wanted to talk about your advocacy work, and I know you're a spokesperson for a few organizations. Talk about your role there and what the message is you're trying to spread. Well, it started out, um, part of the reason I was so excited to find your organization was because I went through four and a half months of thinking I was the only person ever under the age of 50 diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so there was this inherent fear and this inherent just sense of not belonging. Um, so when I came across Stupid Cancer and a couple of other organizations, I wanted to make sure that I used the big mouth that God provided me with to let other people know so that they weren't ever as fearful as I was, as afraid as I was during those first months. So obviously anywhere I go, I'm touting Stupid Cancer, um, a huge advocate of him and angels. Um, I do a lot of volunteer work with the Colon Cancer Alliance. Um, I'll be traveling next week with Colon Town and Christopher Life. Um, I can't do as much as I used to be able to do, but anytime I come across somebody that's newly diagnosed, I'm giving them a list of names um, for people that they need to contact and making sure that they get in touch with the right people. Um, I think it's essential for us. The only way that this movement is going to move forward is if we, the people at the grassroots level, are the ones moving it forward. And I appreciate bureaucracy, bureaucracy, and I appreciate all the red tape that goes into it, but really it's us going out and talking to newly diagnosed patients or talking to those patients who are afraid and letting them know they're not alone and letting them know some of these organizations are out there. That's where we're going to be able to alleviate their fears and really take some of that anger and frustration away from them. Well, so Michelle, that's what I do, what I do. And and you are a uh, a role model and an inspiration. And I I really I can't thank you enough. And I apologize profusely as I did at the top of the segment. Um, you are a rock star. You've been a friend and a fan and an advocate and a BFF for uh, for many many years now. And I thank you for your your story and your passion and your uh, just being awesome. Well, thank you, and thank you for what you guys are doing. You're you're making it easy for those of us down on the on the grassroots level, and that means everything. So, thank you. All right, take care, Michelle Hastings. Bye, everybody. Good night. Yeah. Thank you. All right, let's breeze through the uh, through the news Hello, here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Matt, and everyone else. Going back to last week, we had a joke about this. Head on over to events.supercancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some events coming up in New York City, uh, the Twin Cities, Boston, and a special shout-out to Denver, who uh, are having the What's Next Get Busy Living. Uh, it's a, a day event. It's a, a boot camp, as we used to call it. And it's happening on Saturday, October 12th from 9.30 in the morning to 2.30 in the afternoon. Have a lot of great guest speakers, including uh, former Stupid or Stupid Cancer Show alumni, Woody Roslin, yes. uh, among others. So check that out. Uh, you can head on over to events.supercancer.org. Okay, save the date for OMG 2014, the 7th annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults, next April at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. Visit OMG 2014. 
www.fallseasonsfacebook.org to join the mailing list and the official Facebook group. The fall season is upon us, so it's time to stock up on some new threads like a stupid cancer hoodie. They went over real well this weekend at the uh, OMG East. Uh, we have hats, gloves, more. Check out stupidcancerstore.org. Anytime for great deals on great products year-round. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And you are listening to the Stupid Cancer Show in its all-new stunning HD format. We know you can't listen to each show live, so be sure to subscribe for free anytime on iHeartRadio Talk, Apple iTunes Podcast, or right here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Visit stupidcancershow.org anytime to get connected, and thanks for listening. And that is your... Stupid Cancer News. All right, we got a great lineup here for the second half of the show. We're going to talk about childhood cancer, long-term childhood cancer, and how they kind of spill into the the uh, the booze-drinking young adult universe. Yeah, eventually they grow up. Eventually they do grow up. Well, we're going to be joined by some amazing folks from uh, Northwestern and the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. I will let them introduce themselves because they are way too talented for me to do justice. So please welcome Colleen Sierra, Kristen Smith, and Karen Kinahan. Ladies. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, I, like I said, your bios are amazing, but I would probably do them, and Annie, I would do them a gross disservice by reading them. So I will let you introduce your fabulous selves and what you're doing um, at the Robert H. Lurie Center, one of our BFFs out there in Chicago who has, like, the most incredible social media presence, i got to tell you. You guys are tweeting hounds there. Good stuff. So uh, let's start with Karen. Okay. Can you guys hear me okay? Perfectly fine. Okay. Um so what do you want me to talk about myself? I was uh, I've been a pediatric oncology nurse for 26 years. Uh, started at Children's Memorial, which is now Lurie Children's, and then I started working in cancer survivorships exclusively in 1995. And basically, I just realized after a couple of years of kind of getting to know that area of oncology that we really needed a specialized area or clinic for the adults to be seen. It just wasn't really working out as well for them to come back to the pediatric hospital. So I was. Fortunate to have the support of the Lurie Cancer Center back in 2001 uh, to start the program, and we named it the SAR program, and I've been following patients ever since at the adult medical center and being able to help them just navigate the medical system, get into the care that they need, and following the long-term health guidelines, and so much has happened over the past decade, so it's kind of been an amazing ride, and I have just really great patients, and I'm assuming you'll probably meet Colleen, who's one of them, in a little bit. And Kristen, you have a huge role that is important to all of us who are, who are young adults facing cancer. So why don't you tell us a little about what you do at Northwestern? Absolutely. So I'm pretty fortunate that at the Lurie Cancer Center, my position exists, and I am the patient navigator for fertility preservation. So it is my entire job to ensure that every young adult that walks through our doors with a newly diagnosed cancer disease gets a talk with me. And basically I talk to them about the treatment that's proposed for them, how we think that could impact their specific fertility or their ability to have children in the future, walk through all the options that they would have for fertility preservation, and then also help them get to that reality of doing fertility preservation if it's something that they wish to do. My role has also expanded a little bit, you know, to work with patients from our STAR clinic, 
um, so that I am seeing now the adult survivors of childhood cancer come to me who maybe weren't offered fertility preservation when they were initially diagnosed, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, but now have concerns about their current fertility. So we've really been working hard to incorporate all those patients into the program as well. And, uh, Kristen, you and I uh, share the common misfortune of knowing Dr. Kate Timmerman over at the uh, Aqua Fertility <laughs> Consortium. We have to throw her a bone. We love her to death. She's amazing, and she's uh, that whole new motherhood thing looks great on her. Absolutely. Yes. And Kenny's here. I think he knows you, right? <laughs> we, oh, of course he does. You've shared lots of drinks. We go way back. Yes, indeed, indeed. Although she didn't try to kill us in a car. That was no, definitely no. no. <laughs> and we won't even talk about that on the radio. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right. Well, uh, Colleen, uh, you're really the centerpiece here because you are a long-term childhood cancer survivor who is now a young adult, and you've been through that journey. And I like to joke that you're the Gerber graduate that uh, circumvented the donut hole of transition. So let's 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 talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I'm Colleen Sarah. I'm really just happy to be a part of this because uh, Karen and Kristen have just played such an instrumental role. Um, in that transition. Um, Karen has been such a blessing and an advocate for me um, from the second I, I came from Children's into Northwestern to start my care there. She's been there since I was 18 from the very beginning. Um, so she's so fantastic. And Kristen is is the one who sort of got me started on my infertility journey, um, was the first person to really help me out with that, give me some information um, about what that was going to look like and might mean for me. And so um, these are just two incredibly important women to me, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of this. So I was, uh, not to make this all about me, even though I will, uh, I was diagnosed at 21, <laughs> and 21 is right at the random weird cusp of how hospitals define where pediatrics end and adults begin. I'll, this is because of a question totally. for, for Karen and Kristen. Is there now, a, and this was in 1995, so things have changed with the guidelines and whatnot, but can you talk about who defines that? How does that happen, and when do hospitals make that decision as to where a patient fits in? Well, I probably could talk about it from the oncology and the cancer perspective. And I've been in survivorship for a long time, so I feel out of a little bit of the clinical trial piece and the, you know, the studies. But I think it really just depends on where the patient's going to be have the best opportunity for a clinical trial to enroll in a trial is there a trial for them that's a like a cog trial or is there an ecog trial and then also it sometimes i think what am i hearing is it can depend on the patient's um what they want to do sometimes you know some people just want a baby they're on that cost like you were and they're going to feel better in an adult institution there and i think that's a big issue that we have to deal with is having the pediatric patient you know, an adult center or, you know, maybe having the adult kind of going down to the pediatric center. So I think it really just, I think that's the main cutoff, and I don't think there's a black and white line um, of how it works. Again, I think it's just going to depend on trials and what is really the best option for the patients. And, Colleen, why don't you start tell us, oh, sorry about that. Colleen, why don't you start telling us a little bit about, uh, you know, a little bit more about your story and also the late effects of having had a childhood cancer. Yeah, definitely. So my story my story is an interesting one um, in that I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was 15. Um, and so that was, that was pretty run-of-the-mill. Um, I had pretty standard chemo and radiation treatment. 
But what was especially interesting about that time is I felt like I had a long-standing relationship with cancer at that point uh, because my, my best friend had been diagnosed her parents um, had been diagnosed. Her mother had recently died, and then um, she herself died. And um, and I was diagnosed during all of that. So I felt like I came in with a lot of interesting expect- expectations and ideas of what having cancer would mean, even though mine was far, far easier than her cancer was. Um, and so I was thrilled to sort of figure that out. Um, I was at Children's, like I said, and it was a really great experience. And I was very nervous about transferring my care to Northwestern, um, and the STAR program was just so instrumental in helping make that transition a smooth one. Um, so I'm really, really grateful for, for Karen and the program there. Because um, it, it has been challenging navigating some of these long, long-term um, difficulties and consequences of having childhood cancer. All right, so my question is really then about this. Uh, I don't think it's there as much anymore, but I really felt it when I started Stupid Cancer seven years ago that there was always a, a, a major, like almost a social stigma divide between young adults who are long-term childhood cancer survivors and young adults who were diagnosed as young adults. Uh, I don't, again, I don't know if that exists anymore, but I always felt like most of the cancer conferences that I ever went to uh, in like oh two three four five leading up to the young adult world uh, were all about childhood cancer survivors who are now adults and only recently has there been like this uptake of young adult specific uh, conferences and symposia and literature but it always involves and includes long term peds your thoughts. Uh, this is Karen speaking. So, uh, well, I I would agree, Matthew, and I think you're actually one of the main reasons why we have the young adult population now in the forefront, um, and you know, coming down the the road of just getting a lot of not I wouldn't say press necessarily, but just getting you know their word out there and the message out there and the needs out there. So I think you are have a lot to do with that. But childhood cancer itself, you know, we've been around, we've had good clinical trial groups, we merged as COG, and right from there came into the, there's been a late effects committee, then the guidelines, and obviously CCSS, the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, has just given us a, a wealth of knowledge. So there's been a lot to talk about, a lot to present, and we've learned a lot from that population and how it affects the adult survivors of childhood cancer, which is, for instance, like Colleen and many of the other thousands of patients. Um, the AYA population is just kind of not coming around. I think it's been around that I've met Archie Blyer and known Dr. Archie Blyer for probably 13 plus years, and it sort of has now just gotten spearheaded again the last four or five years, which I think is fantastic. But I think there is a little bit of differentiation as far as the needs of, of the groups. I think I've met more adult onset young adult cancer patients at Northwestern just from being where I'm located and. The needs are a little bit different, and personally, one of my goals in just is to try to incorporate them in things that we do for childhood cancer and events that we have and combine the two groups as much as we can to just have them kind of reap the benefits of our experiences, I guess. And Karen, why don't you tell us and explain to our listeners about the STAR program at Northwestern? Okay, and just the population we serve. Exactly. So it's a little bit the, the background of what the program is. Oh, sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was I 
had the idea. I, I had met Dr. Effinger, Kyle Effinger, back in like 1997. A good man. Very good man. He was one of the first. Yeah, and he's like a rock star now. And so, he, anyways, he, we, I met him, and I came back to him after a meeting, and I said, you know, why we could do something like this with Northwestern? I was at Children's Memorial. There's an academic affiliation, the Cancer Center affiliation, and fortunately, um, it took a few years to get it up and running, but we were given an opportunity to just have a late effects long-term follow-up care program for adult survivors of child cancer to be transitioned to an adult medical setting and have, I was the nurse, so I'm the one nurse, and I work with a general internal medicine physician, Dr. Arthi Didwania. We've always had a psychologist in our program, and uh, Dr. Lynn Wagner is our psychologist. And it's basically the three of us that are the core um, staff, I guess, of the STAR program, but I think one of the large benefits that we've had over the time of having this program is we have a lot of great specialists, and we have easy access and through EPIC and through just working with a lot of the same specialists over the years, like one particular cardiologist, one or two endocrinologists, we have a good relationship with them. And so they know the patient's needs, they know the issues that they're dealing with, and they are also have become experts you know, on the issue. So it really is a late a long-term follow program and clinical care is in our in my mind anyways the top priority it's the patient care and getting patients you know to who they need to see whether it's us or even we can help with general medical issues as well it is a research study it's been a study for the 12 years that you know we started in 2001 and we just patients enroll and the reason why it's a research study is because we do want to learn from our patients experiences and we found that generally our patients pretty much everybody signs a consent to enroll in the program and We've done some studies within the study, so being an academic medical center, that is one of the components. And then the other piece is just really to have education opportunities in clinic, um, one-on-one with patients and families about late effects from therapy, what to, to expect, helping them understand why we're having them do certain tests, and then also to have more formal education events and networking events with um other childhood cancer survivors, and in some cases we've now incorporated the AYA population into the events that we've had. So. So then, so, so I want to turn it over to the other part of the conversation. Obviously, the the number one I like to hearken the number one issue for young adults is the um, issues of isolation, but the most pragmatic issue is fertility. And you guys are uh, I don't know if the, it's the better half or the other half of the uh, Onco Fertility Consortium that I mentioned, Dr. Kate Timmerman, uh, who works with the incredible uh, Teresa Woodruff, the Woodruff Lab there. Uh, so, question for Kristen and for um, Colleen: What role uh, did fertility play in your diagnosis, and where is the uh, the Fertility Consortium in that equation? Definitely. Um, so, I I was one of those folks when Kristen was talking about you know she works with people when they have uh, an onset of cancer in terms of preserving their fertility. Um, I was diagnosed at a time where that didn't exist, um, and so I wasn't given an option to preserve my fertility. All I was told is uh, this this may negatively impact your ability to have children, and we're not going to know until you try. Um, and so a couple of years ago at this point, I started that journey um, and knew after a few months that, that something was amiss. Uh, talked to Karen about it, who immediately put me in touch with Kristen, and we got the ball rolling. And um, because of their help and involvement, I, I now have a 13-month-old little boy. Uh, awesome. Who is so fantastic. Yeah, baby. Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, and I know that would not have been possible 
um, without the STAR program and without Kristen's help in the fertility um, clinic. She's the one that got me set up with my fertility infertility treatment team. So it was a huge, enormous, can't-be-understated thing for me in terms of their help and involvement. And one of you my know, questions – oh, sure, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you guys chime in. Go I ahead. I was going to say what it's all about for the consortium as a whole is, is Colleen's story and patients like Colleen. Um, you know, Teresa Woodruff did start the Onco Fertility Consortium here at Northwestern, and it really became um, kind of the science behind fertility preservation and, and got this movement of fertility preservation kind of going across the country. And so now it's um, an organization that has, you know, about 50 academic medical centers across the country who have kind of banded together to really push the science of fertility preservation program or push the science of fertility preservation forward but also to ensure that patients now know that fertility preservation exists and is an option for them when they're initially diagnosed. And we could start with Colleen on this one. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the long-term effects of having, um, having had a pediatric cancer? Definitely. I think, I think for me at the forefront was always fertility. Um, that was... I knew, you know, from a young age that I wanted to be a mom. I knew that wasn't going to happen for me until later in life um, because I also knew at a young age I wanted to be a psychologist, and that required a tremendous amount of school. Um, and so I always worried about my ability to have children, and as it turns out, it was a very real, um, it was a fear rooted in reality. So for me, that has always been the biggest one. And and I think what has competed with that number one fear is always the the fear of a reoccurrence, um, health related anxiety, um, wondering if what's going to happen next. I had um, a pretty a pretty serious breast cancer scare about a year and a half ago, um, where we were we all pretty much thought you know that it was going to come back that I had breast cancer. So uh, I would say that those are the, the top two that always sort of change out what 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 is the biggest fear. And, and for now, it's probably going to move back to health-related stuff now that I have Lincoln. Um, so those are the two big ones for me. But I know that there are tons of other little things that people struggle with that maybe aren't as pronounced or profound but are constantly on people's minds and um, a part of, become a part of their daily lives. The running joke that I have with my uh, pediatric neurocologist is that I am a walking Petri dish. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I had... <laughs> I had a rare cancer at a rare time, and there were no treatments, and we improvised everything that happened back then. So there really was no known anticipation of my late effects. And as they start to now crop up 15, 16, 17, 18 years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that might have happened to you. And, <laughs> and, this, and, and, and I'm a walking target because everything they did to me back then doesn't happen anymore. But I, I, what has happened to me has actually paved the way for uh, conversations about what might be possible but not necessarily probable. So I am actually a published white paper <laughs> with my late effects <laughs> because of the radiation. Uh, Lucky you. I know, I know. I'm happy to. You're welcome, by the way. So I've, I've enhanced <laughs> all your career, so thank you very much. Uh, but So so what what is the... Um, what, what would you say are the uh, sort of the known late effects that childhood cancer survivors need to be made aware of while they're still children. Karen, I'm oh. going to let you take that yeah, one. <laughs> um, 
Okay, I think, first of all, you maybe wouldn't spring something on this like a seven-year-old. So there's a point of, like, when a patient needs to sort of become their own advocate and learn about their, you know, late effects. And that can certainly start in childhood through the adolescent years. And we do know that we do a pretty good job in pediatric oncology where there are more long-term clinics now um, in COD institutions that we, you know, have documented that and the number continues to grow. So the point is that we want these patients to be able to learn about the risk factors, not scare them half to death about like, oh my gosh, I'm have this and this and cause undue anxiety, but at least to start the conversation in the pediatric arena. Um, so if they can come to a, a late effects program, that's fabulous, and then they have some information, and many of them are not going to come to a late effects star program or you know, like a Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, survivor program. They're going to be out in the community. So what I would just reiterate, and also for adult survivors, is to just get as much information as you can when you can get it. So if it starts in the teenage years, to try to, like, get your medical records together. And there's many good resources online even, like Oncolink for adults. There's through the ASCO. Um, those are adult um, onset, and obviously the COG guidelines are at survivorshipguidelines.org, you know, accessible to everybody to just, but you have to kind of know what you were treated with in order to get the information. So I don't think, you know, you I think you deal with parents a lot in pediatric oncology because they're sort of, you know, obviously the, the parents of these children, but as they get a little bit older and are getting ready to transition to the adult medical world, um, it's really imperative that they will start to learn and be able to focus and manage their own medical care. And so that's what one of the things I know in pediatrics we focus on and want to do. And then even for young adults that come to our program, I've noticed parents will come with them the first one or two appointments, and then they'll be in the, in the waiting room. And then eventually they'll, you know, come back year after year. I've been doing this for a long enough time where they're like, no, I'm, I'm by myself today. So, you know, big accomplishment that they came to their appointment by themselves. But I guess it's all just um, – kind of getting yourself empowered, I hate to use that word, but that's what it is, is kind of empowering yourself to be able to learn about your medical history, what your potential late effects are, and then be able to have that discussion with your doctor um, at any place, whether it's a community hospital or a, you know, a major cancer center, just to be informed. And Karen, why don't you tell us about a lot of times the initial treatment you get, and we see this a lot with, uh, you know, young pe younger people who have cancer, they are increased risk for secondary cancers as a result of the initial treatments they had. We saw this with uh, Robin Roberts getting a form of leukemia from her breast cancer treatment. So, you know, what are some things that young adults also have to worry about a little bit later in life? Well, some of the blood cancers can happen, and that usually would be within, I'd say, the first three or five years at the most. Um, and... So that was, that's something that actually is in routine blood work. They're going to be assessing for that. So they're going to be doing CBCs and looking for any kind of leukemia testing. The things that patients, especially with Hodgkin's, that are even stem cell transplants have had total body radiation are secondary cancers from radiation. And one of the, you know, ones that we focus a lot on and are very proactive about is secondary breast cancer, which can be from radiation to the chest area, anywhere that is in the chest, you know, neck and chest area. So we follow, and um, I would say pretty much everyone that's following patients for this would be recommended for patients to have a screening mammogram and a breast MRI at age 25 years old, so much younger than the general population who's getting a mammogram at age 40. So this is like one way to be proactive to pick up um, 
early detection and secondary breast cancers for our high-risk patients. So that's for, that's a large example. I think just another class of drugs are called anthracyclines, so it's the agemycin, the donamycin, the doxorubicin. Um, those can be cardiotoxic at treatment and also many years later. So that's just another area that um, we follow with echocardiograms. And many people believe, like, oh, but gosh, it's been 10 years, I've been fine. Unfortunately, those studies have shown that these medical aid effects with cardiotoxicity and cardiomyopathy can happen later in life, so even up into age 30 and 40 years old, and these are in pediatric studies, of course, but that it's just something that we need to screen for, and um, obviously there's some things you can do to keep yourself healthy, too, as far as, you know, keeping your cholesterol and your blood pressure in check and things like that. So there's th there's modifiable risk factors, but if you've been treated with anthracyclines, then you should really be, you know, bring that up with your physician to talk about um, cancer screening. And there aren't recommendations for adults, from what I understand. Like, I think at some point there may be, like, where the guidelines aren't exactly recommending that. But in pediatrics, we do. It's documented. It's the standard of care, and it's based on evidence-based research that we do need to follow these patients for life for cardiotoxicity and cardiomyopathy. So I, I want to, we have about, uh, I don't know, five or so minutes left, maybe a little more. I'd like to discuss the the latest and greatest in um uh fertility and uh, going back to Colleen again congratulations on being a new mom I had to buy my kids um because uh, I was infertile and went through IVF with my wife and I have twins now they're three and a half and then Kristen knows this because she stalks me on Facebook which hmm. is a good thing so <laughs> as does congratulations. Teresa congratulations that's fantastic thank you very much thank you very much I love them very much they're amazing and they're a handful which is nice um but uh, I'm sure <laughs> But the the whole, uh, you know, the conversation is really around the right of a young adult to be a parent regardless of cancer and the barriers to actually, um, you know, become successful at becoming a parent. Um, sorry, I just got distracted. The barriers to uh, be becoming a parent because we talk about, politely we talk about the oh shit month of actually getting diagnosed and the minimal amount of time you actually have to uh, bank your sperm or deal with, you know, oocytes or, or the hormones. Uh, where are we at right now with the whole ovary freezing? I heard that was something down the pipeline. So it's certainly something that's offered at select institutions across the country, ovarian tissue cryopreservation. It's simply where we take either an entire ovary or a portion of an ovary and uh, slice it into small cortical strips and freeze those strips with the hope that we could either thaw out some of those strips and actually transplant them back into the patient when she's ready to try for a pregnancy. Um, for certain patients, though, that would be contraindicated. So for a patient, for example, who had a blood cancer, that ovarian tissue is leukocyte-rich. So if we're putting that back into that patient, there's a concern that we would potentially reseed her with her cancer. So for those patients, um, we're currently working on a technology called in vitro follicle maturation, and it starts to sound like Frankenstein when I get into it, but it's a pretty amazing technology where we're working on isolating out some of the immature eggs that a woman has in her ovaries. And as a woman, we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. They're sitting in there just waiting to be used. So we can take some of those eggs and isolate them out and then encapsulate them in a three-dimensional alginate that sort of serves as an artificial ovary and try and coax that egg to grow outside of the body so that we can get an egg that's mature enough to fertilize with sperm. 
And it sounds nuts, and it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. You know, our researchers here in the Woodruff Lab have been working on it pretty extensively for the last few years, and we have had some decent breakthroughs. It's not ready quite yet for human use, but, you know, the hope is that those pediatric patients who are having their tissue frozen now at this point, because that's their only option for fertility preservation, in 10 or 20 years will have this type of technology ready for them so that they can try for a family in the future. And what is the role of the insurance companies in all of this? So surprisingly, the insurance companies have been really great with ovarian tissue freezing. There are certain institutions that offer it uh, for free through grant funding that they have. Um, some of the institutions, I know for a fact, actually bill insurance, and insurance has indeed paid for this type of procedure to happen. So we've had really good luck with insurance companies paying for this. And, you know, I know um, there is sort of a stigma around infertility charges, so things like doing embryo freezing or egg freezing. Sometimes those aren't covered um, under adult insurance plans. Um, here at Northwestern, we've had some pretty decent luck with appealing to the insurance companies and really, you know, talking to the insurance companies about the reason behind doing fertility preservation and seeing if we can get the insurance companies to cover that on a medical necessity instead of this kind of secondary, you know, infertility type of coverage. And we've had some success with that. So I know there are many, many groups working together to try and get some legislature in place so that fertility preservation is offered under more insurance plans and hopefully as as the young adult movement does grow and again thank you Matt for that um, we can get some more um, you know publicity about the importance of fertility preservation insurance coverage and why don't we just do one takeaway from each of you what you know we have to wrap up here it's getting kind of late one takeaway from each of you of what you'd like our listeners to you know run with in the young adult movement and especially for what you guys are dealing with, with the long-term survivors of childhood cancers. We can start with Colleen. Um, I think staying as connected to the, to the community as possible has been really, really helpful. Um, having, having a team like Karen and Kristen and all of the other wonderful people that help out has been instrumental. Um, but also, as you know, Karen and Kristen have mentioned, a lot of places don't don't have um, the types of services that Northwestern does in terms of long-term care. So seeking out that community wherever wherever you can find it. Um, I've been a part of the Memory Angels, as I heard Michelle talk about for a long time. I've done some a lot of my own nonprofit work, just really staying connected because uh, you know, as Matthew talked about, that sense of isolation can be really significant. So I think staying connected to the community and really relying on a support network has been incredibly helpful for me. Karen Kristen? I'll go next. Yeah. Go ahead, Kristen. Sorry. All right. Um, you know, I think infertility, it can be a very isolating and sometimes a painful diagnosis. And to have that on top of everything else that a patient has gone through, it can be almost debilitating. So I think it's important for survivors to know that there are institutions out there that can help them and that know what it means to be a young adult a cancer survivor or a young adult oncology patient. You know, I serve as a national patient navigator, so I take calls from patients all over the country and can help them figure out, you know, what they can do in terms of next steps and who they can see in their area who might have a specialty in fertility preservation or after cancer care. So I think it's important on the fertility front to know that there are answers out there and that, um, you know, patients certainly can call me, and I'm happy to uh, set them up in any way I can. 
Okay, and I will, last but not least, I would just say that, uh, first of all, it's an honor to be on the show and to just really get the message that, you know, we work day in and day out to help patients, and to be able to spread our word through this medium is amazing. So I just would like to really, I guess, empower patients to, you know, become their own advocate, to get their information, um, to just bring it to their, whether they're in treatment, just off treatment, you know, in surveillance or many a long-term survivor, just to look on the Internet. They could call me, too, if you want. I'm happy to help people, um, you know, try to find clinics that might be in their area as far as uh, late-effects late care for adults survivors of childhood cancer. Um, so I just think try to get yourself educated and, you know, take the first step in um, being your best advocate. Well, I will thank you for coming on the show and end with a high note, which is that anecdotally I'm hearing less and less stories of people who are not told about their fertility rights when they were diagnosed. So we apparently are, anecdotally at least, making a difference. Uh, and uh, you know, for the ones that were told late, at least they were told. And mm-hmm. our little cauldron of ether that we're brewing is actually working. So you guys are um, as uh, equally awesome as the young adult cancer movement is. So I thank you guys enough. And please do send my best to Dr. Timmerman and Teresa Woodruff. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Good night, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Colleen Sarah, Kristen Smith, and Cameron Kinahan. All righty. Good show. They are awesome. Annie, let me ask you, were you, I'm sure we discussed this on the show at Mm -hmm. least several times, but what were your, if any, conversations about your fertility rights when you were diagnosed? Yeah, so when I was first diagnosed, I was like, one of the first things that I blurted out in my uh, haze of hysteria was that I had never had a child and I didn't have a family. And that was one of the first things that the radiologist I was actually told about fertility stuff the night I was diagnosed. Wow. So I, because also um, I, I was diagnosed and received all my treatment at NYU, and Dr. Noyes is there, and she is very linked into Fertile Hope. Right. So they told me about Fertile Hope literally the night I was diagnosed. It's amazing. And um, Progress. We yeah, like progress. absolutely. I actually did not do fertility treatments. Because given the nature of my diagnosis, I had no time before surgery. I had my surgery was less than two weeks after I was diagnosed. But um, they wanted me to do chemotherapy very quickly. As soon as I was healed from surgery, they really wanted me to get in there and get started. They gave me the option to do one round of fertility treatment. They said, if you want to do it, if you feel really strongly, you want to do an egg harvest. They said, we'll give you one shot. And that was it. Wow. Because they didn't want to waste any time because they just really wanted me to start chemotherapy as soon as possible. And I also had six months of chemotherapy, so I really wanted to get started. But, um, you know, I was really nervous about putting all the chemicals in my body because of breast cancer. And they did tell me it was safe, but I just, um, you know, for my own reasons, I decided not to do it. But I've had some testing done and... Given my age, they felt that I should be all right. So I I did have a lot of in-depth conversations. And I think that also goes to show, you know, I went to a very connected and uh, great treatment center. And I can't see Kylie enough of NYU, but they are just excellent with young adult patients. And if uh, you or anyone you know in Trisidaria who is facing the horror of cancer at any age, uh, I definitely can't recommend it 
much better. Well, we like that. Again, progress. Yeah. The fact that you were told the night of, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, I, I it was like the be after the the radiologist sat down, put her hands on my legs, looked me in the eye, and said, "You're not going to die." Or she said, maybe it was, you're not dying or you're not going to die. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> right. I was like, okay, uh, I don't know what's going on. Right. And, uh, yeah, I found out very, very quickly. I think it was in the take-home package of You Have Cancer book. Yes. Was the information on. They still on, make that, don't they? Oh, yeah, it was a Cancer 101, and it was huge. And I also, my favorite part, I will just leave out this note, my favorite part of my take-home of you have cancer diagnosis was if you feel the need to turn to street drugs, alcohol, or suicide, or pills, please call this number. Wow. Yeah, it was like a suicide hotline for people just diagnosed with, with cancer. Wow. And it, it actually made me laugh. <laughs> like, as much as I was hysterical, I was like, wow, that, I mean, I see what the need is for that, but it it just, that made me laugh in my uh, dark moments. Well, before we close, I do want to give Maureen the floor because she was very uh, ardent and uh, passionate about some news about uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't personally follow Breaking Bad. Well, I do. I'm in season two somewhere. So there will be no spoilers. Um, and it was actually Annie who alerted me earlier to a discussion with the producers of Breaking Bad. And the creator. The creator of Vince Breaking Gilligan. Bad. Um, and there was one portion. I'll read part of it. Um, it said that Walter White, who is, if you don't know the plot, he is a failed chemist who's a high school chemistry teacher who is diagnosed with lung cancer and starts cooking meth to pay his medical bills and support his family after he dies. Um, and so he was originally conceived as a 40-year-old, and when he pitched the show, it was the protagonist was a 40-year-old, and he was in New Mexico, but then they bumped his age up to 50 because it made more sense for him to have his crisis, and they said, quote, we pushed him to be 50 because at 40, he's a little too young to have this crisis. It was just much more powerful to have him be a little bit older. So he was literally too young for this cancer, Wow! apparently. Um, and we so they made him a, older. We should start an organization called that. I think we should. Well, yeah. okay, so I'm a big fan of Breaking Bad, and I watched I watched the entire series in one month. Okay. I just started watching it on Labor Day, and I watched the final episode last night, which was amazing. So, you know, I get it that part, so the cancer he had, he has lung cancer, I forgot what kind, blah, 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 but he, apparently the average age for lung cancer is 71, so it is, and he was a non-smoker, so I do kind of get it that they wanted it to appeal to the masses of someone being a little bit older with a disease. I actually, I don't really knock them for that. Um, I know it sucks for the young adult movement that we hate hearing things like that, but when I truly think about the show and how about it all dollars. Yeah. I mean, it's just odd for me to to have the to hear them phrase it like that. You know, it if would, it made it sense otherwise for him to be yeah. fifty, then yeah. Yeah. then possibly, you know, like maybe yeah. in like the fifty year old life stage was more appropriate for it, this character. Exactly. Yeah. But there are certainly young adults in their twenties and thirties and forties who are being diagnosed right. with lung cancer. So just to hear it phrased that way is a little bit strange. Yeah, it absolutely jumped out at me too. But and then you also have to remember it's a TV show and they do want to appeal to the masses. Yes. And mm-hmm. um, one thing I will say about the show is how well they portrayed cancer. That sure. they right. really nailed it with the well, doctors. That, that's probably our friends at Hollywood Health and Society. I'm sure. Show, yeah. I'm sure they Shout had out to them. They're this, great. Yeah, yeah, this show is very in tune. But they just did such a great job with you know they showed them like I don't I hate giving things away, but 
losing his hair and the tough conversations with doctors and, um, you know, not everybody who wants to pay their bills will make meth, but right. it does sound like a pretty good <laughs> idea. But, um, you know, just watching him going through treatment literally made me shudder because he had the IV with the red chemotherapy, which those of us who have had treatment know that's azreomycin. And I had it too, and it literally just made me nauseous. Right. And um, the red death. Yeah, red devil, red death. My my doctor called it the best form of the bad attitude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they did a really good job of portraying the illness and disease and the struggles that we all go through and the side effects. And I can't say enough great things about how they truly portrayed his, you know, struggle with the illness. No, the authenticity factor was really one of the best very shows high, out there. Very yeah. high, very mm-hmm. high. Um, but I will say for our listeners, don't turn to math. And don't <laughs> and don't ever suggest that to your friends. Tell them to like come up with a crowd fund, like the crowd fundraising page or something. And then like the ShamWow too. Yeah. Seriously, do something. Put like a bald picture of yourself on a fundraising page. Uh, if you're thinking about meth, just call the 800 number. <laughs> right. and Maureen and I will talk you out of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> seriously. So we'll talk you. Great show. Forward. I'm sad yes. to see it go, and yeah. uh, I am very grateful for what they did for the cancer movement as a whole. Thank you. Was it AMC or Bravo? AMC. Thank you, AMC. AMC. Well done, Good folks. stuff. All right, well, another great show. Another great show. Broadcasting live in HD here on the Stupid Cancer Show. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Uh, internets. I shall start that over again. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 278th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Michelle Hastings, Karen Kinahan, Kristen Smith, and Colleen Sarah. Join us next week as we take on disrupting and debunking nonprofits. It's time to think differently about causes. Join us as we welcome VIPs Jacob Harold with GuideStar, Ken Berger with Charity Navigator, and Art Taylor, who's the CEO of BBB Wise Giving Alliance, and Survivor Spotlight and Young Adult Brain Tumor Survivor and Healthcare Blogger Catherine Blotner. All right, folks, subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks.